More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Welcome to episode 28 of Survivor Sanctuary. I am Kelly, your host for the podcast, coming at you from the Survivor Sanctuary Studios in sunny South Florida. It is a beautiful day today. Okay, I live in South Florida, so every day is pretty much beautiful. Well, I'm glad you're tuned in, and I'm super excited to introduce to you one of our members of the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. Now, you may already have interacted with him there, or maybe you're someone who already knows Eric Peterson, but either way, you are going to enjoy today's podcast as I dive into Eric's story. Now, Eric has a podcast of his own, and uh, he records it on his, I'm going to call it a farm, his sprawling estate in the wilds of Australia. And uh, you'll actually get to hear some of the wildlife in the background during this interview. I asked Eric if his rooster was going to make an appearance on the podcast, like it did on Jimmy Hinton's podcast when he was a guest on that show. And uh, unfortunately, Eric said that they had to eat Mr. Rooster. Made me sad, but the good news is plenty of wildlife for us to enjoy anyway. Well, Eric, as I mentioned, is a survivor. He has his own podcast called The Outback Berean. You can find it online. Just search hashtag T-O-B on Facebook and you will find Eric and his many posts and you can hear his podcast and uh, learn more about him there. But today we're going to learn more about Eric, one of the funniest and uh, just most entertaining members of the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook page. So without further ado, let's get to today's conversation with Eric. Eric, thank you so much for joining us on Survivor Sanctuary. Hey, listen, thank you for having me. Well, I've been excited to have you on the podcast for a really long time. I used to see you um, posting comments on some Facebook pages of people that I followed, like Jimmy Hinton, and he does the Speaking Out on Sex Abuse podcast, and you always cracked me up, everything that you said, and then they had you on the podcast, I believe, last October, and I was like, I have to have Eric Peterson on the podcast. <laughs> I have dubbed you the funnest member of the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group because oh, I, I, hands down. It does get me into trouble. And it's interesting <laughs> you, you say that because I've been looking at it lately. And it's actually a coping mechanism, as Jimmy would coin the term. And um, it gets me through life. Yeah. And it's fun. I mean, it's nice that we don't have to be like so serious every second because a lot of what we talk about and a lot of what we do is super serious. And it's nice to have that kind of comic relief. And so I don't know, you're, you're fun in the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group and that's a great time to plug it. People should definitely join because then they can interact with you and uh, see all of your shenanigans, I'll call them. Do they say shenanigans in Australia? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Kelly will have that in the show notes after the recording. You are absolutely correct. It's like you've memorized the <laughs> podcast. 
<laughs> you know, you gotta let people know what's in the show notes so they can go there and find it. It's, it's to me, it's easier. Like I'll be listening to a podcast and I'm trying to think, oh, they mentioned this. Oh, they mentioned this. And, and then like, you're going to forget by the uh, end of the podcast. So with my podcast, the Outback Berean podcast, you should listen to that guys. Um, <laughs> shameless plug. Oh, shame, the shame. Anyway, it's hard after you've done a podcast too, to remember what you've said. Yes. You know, you'll have a really intense podcast and you're like, oh, I didn't take notes about what they said. Oh, I forgot what on. Oh, and then you've got to listen to it and you go, do I really want to put this to air? It was like your, <laughs> your triggered podcast. That is legendary. <laughs> I love you know how that? my emotional breakdown on the podcast is your favorite one of all of them. That cracks me up. <laughs> Oh, listen, I shared that podcast with some friends and I just said, listen, you've got to listen to this podcast. <laughs> Kelly is a shit. I said, she really loses it. It's so cool. You know, um, <laughs> it's like reality meets reality. You get like that. I have days where, yeah, I, I think sometimes I'd be better off just going for a long walk off a short pier just to keep out of people's way. Yeah. Because you really had a, a rough yep. time back then and, and, some people, they can look into it themselves, no need to bring it up. But we knew like the track you were taking at the time and it was like, oh, crap, you know, <laughs> it's like, and then at the end of it, it's sort of boom, on that podcast and you're like, I'm putting it up anyway. People need to hear this. And I'm like, oh, here we go. But it was great. <laughs> I thought you did great. I, I like your no, podcast. It's, it's a very, very hard subject to deal with. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm excited and we will get into more about yours too, because I'm excited to share that with everyone as well. I wanted to start just by you telling us your story and like sometimes, I mean, I'll let you tell it, but when I've heard you share some of the things that you've gone through in your life, it's just like trauma upon trauma upon trauma. And I mean, the fact that you can still joke, I know it's a coping mechanism, but it's also, it, it's nice that you can have that because I feel like I would probably be in the fetal position somewhere, like not able to move, but Tell us your story and, and how you came to be a part of the Survivor Sanctuary community and how it is that you can relate to other survivors. Okay. I'll do it in short. Um, as you know, I will eventually have that book out called Always Broken. And um, even from day one, I was um, flown over here to Australia. Uh, Mum was pregnant. And back then it was easier to adopt out in Australia from New Zealand than to do it back in the same country. It was more expensive and a lot harder. So um, I was born and instantly given away to another family. Mm. That's kind of freaky. Yeah. Uh, so straight up broken, torn from my homeland. Um, I grew up. I don't remember much of my childhood, which is really bizarre in some ways. I try. So up till about my early ages, I don't remember much. But one of the weirdest things that um, has always stayed in my memory when I was about seven years old, um, something came into my bedroom and it was kind of freaky because I remember looking up and it was a figure that I'd never seen or noticed at all in my life. Uh, it was large, hooded, dark, ominous and scared the crap out of me. I tried to scream and, and yell for mum and dad. And um, I couldn't. I was just frozen in terror. It was absolutely horrific. And this thing came closer and closer. And, you know, you know when you, you think you're having a dream, but this wasn't a dream. I couldn't move. I was starting to not be able to breathe as this thing got heavier and heavier as it got closer. 
And the next thing I remember is running into a wall on the way to mum's bedroom. You know, I was trying to take shortcuts <laughs> through the bathroom. <laughs> but um, I was that fit, full of fear, dove straight into mum and dad's bed, up underneath the covers in between them and just lay there and just sort of said nothing. Um, I was always a kid, still to this day. I prefer not to talk. I'm really good at talking, but there's stuff I just don't talk about. And that's what people often give me a hard time about. And it's like, well, hey, it's none of your business. What I want to share with people I need to at times. And so seven, um, I remember then my father, he was Norwegian. My father adopted me and my mum was an Aussie. So my birth parents were apparently originally Kiwi and German. So interesting mix. Raised yeah. pretty similarly. Australians and Kiwis are pretty similar with mum and um, dad being a, a radio officer in Norwegian, the German thing, it was pretty similar. And it was an absolute bizarre connection for God to do this because my adopted father and I have well, had the same birthmark on the back of our neck. How freaky is that? Oh, wow. And, and we, have a, we had the same birthmark on our left thigh. And we weren't even blood. This is That was what was really, it added to the I'm not adopted issue that I dealt with a bit later, you know, because all the signs were saying that, you know, I looked like him, I acted like him. And um, we went and lived in Norway. Um, and that's when I mentioned to Jimmy was when I first was um, introduced to pornography. And um, I found some hardcore pornography and it was horrid. And, um, yeah, just not right. You were seven about at the seven. time, correct? Yeah, about okay. seven, seven or eight years old. Um, it's the kind of stuff not even my father would keep, you know what I mean? It just it was just amazing. that, um, And it was a, a young kid, a young teenage mm -hmm. boy that had this stuff, which is really bizarre too because that kind of stuff is outlawed in Norway. It's, it's illegal. It used to be back then. They're very strict. Their um, policies on alcohol and pornography in that world. It was strange to come across that, and I had no idea. It intrigued me. It caused things to happen in my brain that I dare say shouldn't have started to happen for at least another 20 years. And um, I remember school in Norway, never got into much trouble, came back to Australia, and that was a few years later. You know, I grew up in Australia. I was very disheartened. I didn't want to live here. I wanted to go back to Norway because I actually had my dad with me and my mum with me all the time. Um, in Australia, we were separated every day. They went to work at 7.15 every morning and left work at 3.25 in the afternoon. So I pretty much didn't get to see them very often. In Norway, they were with me every day. Me and Dad went camping and fishing, so we bonded pretty well. Uh, come back to Australia, I'm a big fella. Um, in your terms, I think six foot four, so I'm rather tall. Yep. And um, I've always been muscular, like... Through school, I um, channeled a lot of my rage and anger, but I didn't realise it into bodybuilding and fighting and, and just being a mean, nasty person. I started drinking at about 14. And actually, when I sort of look at it, it's hard to put the time frame together with the big blocks of blanks that I have, but I think it was before I started drinking was when I got molested by the scoutmaster that lived up the road from me. And um, the ironic thing was he used pornography to uh, draw me in. 
the wow. very stuff that I saw as a young fella. So you know what I mean? In my in my head, I don't know what happens. I don't know any of the fancy terms, but there was a connection that was made. And it was like I, I I bonded with it. I connected. Um, so my guard went down. It was really weird, really strange. I wouldn't have known um, that that fella had been to jail. He'd been caught for other offences as well. And um, a mate of mine in Sydney contacted me and said, hey, heard one of your neighbours got locked up for being a pedo. I said, Potter, Rob Potter. His name's Robert Potter. And um, I looked it up and sure enough, there he was. And I thought, holy crap. And um, I didn't think about reporting it at that stage. I was, um, gosh, this is in my 40s when this happened. And this is all post, you know, social media. Yeah. Prior to social media, um, you know, like the 90s, early 2000s or whatever, the, the internet wasn't like it is now. It was different. And so now the access that people have to you know, shows like yours and groups on Facebook like yours where they can seek. It wasn't really there, but there was always the availability to find out what the dirty mongrels had done. You know what I mean? The yeah, the papers always like to report on it. And um, there's not much help, I think, or, or not, I should rephrase it, I, I don't think there's enough help um, in general for these people. And that's why yeah. I think in one way Facebook has become sort of a kind of good thing in one way if you can use it proper. These people can hide out and they can talk about things that they can't sometimes with other people, especially if, you know, most people when they've been through a situation like this, they isolate themselves anyway, you know. Exactly. Um, Sandra Bullock in the net was a classic example of how I lived. Not that I did like order pizza and crap like that online. I wasn't that fancy, but... You isolate yourself, you minimise your contact with people and if you are going out, you're inebriated or you, you know, had something up your nose so you can cope, it becomes becomes very hard. So after the Scoutmaster, um, I think it was twice that it happened and the second time I, I something kicked in me because what he did was he also offered me to do um, photography with him. $50 a picture, no headshots. And um, that was when something inside of me just went, God, get the hell out of here. You know, this is just bent. What you're doing's bad enough, but come on, man. And so um, I didn't really tell anybody about it. And this is where I think there was a trip to Norway between then. We went back to Norway again for about another year. I went back to school there and met up with all the kids, you know, that I'd met, gosh, about seven years earlier. And we were all older now in school and doing stuff. It was really cool. And I really enjoyed life there. And um, ironically, like I said, with my memory, a lot of that stuff that happened again when we were in Norway, I remember because I had mum and dad with me most of the time as well. I was a pretty good kid in Norway, didn't get into too much trouble came back to Australia and I was a real ass, eh, Carrie? I wouldn't even speak English. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I was a, such a jerk for about two, three months. My, my old man said I'd only talk to him and mum in Norwegian and I wouldn't talk to other people. It was my way of dealing with it, I suppose. Yeah. And then, you know, back at school, went back to school, 
This is about, gosh, oh, I'm feeling old today, girl. 1982, I think it was. Went back to school and um, started going to a, a local church that I was invited to. And then it started again. Um, I ended up getting involved with the youth group and all that. And it was almost like uh, a grooming network was um, doing their business in that place. When I look back, we were 14, 15-year-old kids at the time. We had clothes given to us by one lady. She was a designer for Brian Rochford and Corfew at the time. Always giving us nice clothes and tight pants, you know. And you, you look back, you just don't think when you're getting that freebies, man, surfy-looking clothes when you're young. It's pretty cool. Yeah. But basically, we were like their Ken dolls. There were two girls in particular that were um, doing it. One was the pastor's daughter. She was our Sunday school teacher, and she was about 20, 20 years older than us, I think. And so between her and a friend, they used to groom the boys, and then it started you were the last one being dropped off at night. Let me tell you, that is a warning to start with, the fact that ladies are driving young boys home, teenagers. We're boys. And so when you've got girls that are sort of showing a little bit of interest and showing a bit of skin every now and then, you know what I mean? The flirty eyes. Groomers know how to groom, man. Yeah. And it's beyond it's beyond going out and a guy picking up a girl or a girl picking up a, a bloke, you know, just doing the moves, showing the moves. It's beyond that. It's it's evil. Because I think, like, you know, they permanently have this mentality of like a rock spider. They were just waiting for the prey to walk past and they just know which one they can get and bang, they'll, they'll just do it. And, um, yeah, that's what happened to me. I ended up being invited in for a drink and, you know, start off a little bit of chatter and they just sort of got to know me a bit better. And one time I remember I turned up there and um, there was porn on the TV. And so... I told you my history, that just went click, click, click with whatever already was built in my brain and all of a sudden I'm thinking, hang on, I've got girls showing me interest. I look similar to these guys in these movies. I'm a young fella, you know, I'm a man by body-wise, but I was just a kid in my brain and right. it was perfect. It was perfect. And, um, yeah, I got used a few times like that as a toy and I'm trying to remember what happened. Because at the same time, the pastor of the church was trying to help me deal with being molested by the scoutmaster, and he was totally unaware what was going on, I think, in his own church. Right. Uh, and it was more than just the two girls, too. I eventually was asked to leave that church. I got my pink slip, don't come Sunday, you know. And um, the pastor had to deliver to me the message in tears. And I knew they were real tears too because I got on really well with this bloke. And he was old school pastor. He was the kind of guy that knew everybody within about a five-kilometre radius of his church because he walked, he walked the streets. He knew everybody. Everybody knew him. He was one of the sweetest fellas. Yeah, when he told me that, um, I went a bit berserk. That's when I started pubbing and boozing and hitting drugs and just going crazy. At the same time that those girls were up to their shenanigans, as we <laughs> called it earlier. Um, there was all, also a, a gentleman that we were wary of that was showing a lot of attention to the boys. And you just know. 
Um, it's one of those things. I don't know whether it's just an innate thing like Darwin's law because back in the old days, you know, they were dealt with when people would prey on children like that. And this guy was. He was grooming and preying on boys, we found out later. And sadly, the elders of the church, from what I understand it, knew and let him resign and move. Uh. Oh, well, he's with his partner or husband, or I'm not even sure, but, you know, lo and behold, the police have got all these details. I didn't muck around. I mean, it's like this is what's happening in so many churches still, like to this day. It's that people yeah. are found out for being child predators, and then instead of turning them into the authorities, we let them leave the church quietly and go live their lives. And go, I mean, the bottom line is they're going and continuing to do what they were doing at that church. It's yeah. just, you know, get them out of your hair yeah. and they're somebody else's problem. But there's also, too, that let's say, for instance, that that fella has repented no longer partakes of what that penchant for children or young boys and lives with his fellow happily, there's still an accountability before what he has done. Oh, yeah. um, you know, like I don't care what they're doing now with their lifestyle. If they're harming kids, they should have their throats slit. That's a harsh thing to say, but I don't see many groomers, like I'm talking those that are, it's like they're possessed. Um, right. Every thought, every move they make, they're watching, they're looking. And Jimmy did it so well. I looked and watched all his training videos that he did. Um, and, and he's spot on in so much of, why, of what he says in how they work and think and act and manipulate situations and people just for that one goal. It's a game to them. You know, it's, it's, it's very hard. And so that gentleman was gone and in the collection of information, I also came across a young lady who was a very dear friend of mine, was raped by another youth leader, and she had told her father, who was an elder in that church, and he did nothing. Uh. That kind of put me on edge. Um, this information just started to surface in my memories, and, and, and that's when I thought I really got to do something because this is bigger than just a, a me being singled out and it's it's more than just me too and that was the thing that that really kicked it for me i thought what about the others they're going to be people out there that haven't dealt with this don't know how to deal with this you know a lot of this next step for people is suicide and um it's it's very hard and so i contacted the royal commission um i submitted my evidence to the Royal Commission, um, all the details that I had. I collected all the addresses and details of the perpetrators for the police as well so that they had their current details. I also collected a list of 60 to 70 people that were involved in that youth group that may have been molested or groomed or sexually abused in that time. Wow. So it's, it, it, it was a big thing. And it also shows you, too, that that fellow that did know, that elder that was aware of this, he should have reported this. But at the time, he was too busy sleeping with anything in a skirt and beating his missus and kids at home. <sighs> and that's all in a public statutory declaration that's in the system. He was later employed by the Department of Community Services to work with children, that fellow. 
even though they were privy to what happened, you know what I mean? And even though they were told in a stat deck that he was beating up his own kids and stuff. Uh, it's a strange world. Do you know what I mean, Kelly? Exactly. And that's the thing. Yeah. And, and so I handed in three submissions to the Royal Commission and they are investigating or they did investigate all of them. And I do know for a fact that that one in particular is currently under um, investigation by a task force. Yep. That church is like a church of horrors. Like I can't. It's one thing you'll hear of a story or two coming out of a church, but that's like when you said that it was almost like a grooming network, it kind of sounds to me like that's exactly what it was and not by accident. The felon that was the youth leader that raped that friend of mine, the the hardest thing for me to cope with with that was that I played soccer with that guy for years. I shared a car with him. I knew him. You know what I mean? We bumped ciggies off each other, cigarettes. Um, Yeah. We just... (laughs) It was just, it was so hard to fathom. The other ones, because you sort of, you knew what they were on about. That one, that one kicked me the hardest. And it was to think like, well, who the hell else has has that fella done that to? It's a memory that I don't want to look, I didn't want to look at. um, And it was very hard for me to do those reports. Um, Kudos to anybody out there listening to this that's had to do a report with the police and sit through it. You're a bloody legend. It's a very, very hard thing to do. Right. Um, they want details. They want they want to know everything um, because obviously that helps them with their investigation. It was like reliving it all again. That was the with the weird thing. My, my poor wife, you know, like <laughs> she saw how much it affected me because that was only like three days after I buried my mother as well. Mm. So I... It rolled in like a, like a storm, but um, I got it through. I got it done. Um, you know, the final report that they did after my mum's funeral was the hardest. The initial wasn't too bad because they were mainly interested in, you know, just broad details. Tell us what happened. Boom, boom, boom. And then when they contacted me again, um, oh, yeah, they wanted to know what fly was on the wall and where it was and what time it was. So they got it. And that was hard. That was the hardest one. I spoke of it with Jimmy bits and pieces, similar on the podcast I did with him. And, um, yeah, it's hard. It's better now. That threw me into a spin-up. You're actually, um, you've caught me on about, what, the end of about a four to six months period of just being despair. Um, Mm. It kicked me hard, mum's death. Um, other things that are going on at the moment too, just just life in general that hit us like a, a dark storm here for a very, very long period of time. And I was dealing at the time with being evicted as well and it was like, wow, just everything. And everything, no matter what people said, I always felt like I was the one that was in the wrong. Right. You know, and sometimes you look back too. you know, when, when these situations, you look back as, as a young kid and you go, well, you shouldn't have put yourself in that situation. You shouldn't have done this. And it's like, it's everything that people drum into your head. Well, you shouldn't have done this. And you almost start to believe. And it's like, no, 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 I'm sorry. But I was a kid at the time. What the hell were they doing to me? Right. You know, it, it, the, 
it, it really, it, so I'm, I'm juggling feeling like, what did I do that was wrong? Was it my fault? You know, like um, when Brian Houston framed Brett Sangstock for tempting his father as a seven-year-old. Oh. You start to think and hear these things and it affects you. It really does. Poor Brett Sanger, man, he lives down the coast from me about two hours from here and he's going to cop it when I land up there one day on his doorstep for a visit. He's awesome. Um, but he's struggling. And I think a lot of people too that go through such trauma like this, they get health issues. Brett's got cancer. You know, one of the classics I think that people cop to, which is, is really funny, is IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. It, it, right. All the anxiety and and so you're living a life where you you have to isolate yourself because physically you can't go out because you can't trust yourself to cough in public. And dealing with all that anxiety, I haven't suffered from that for years, which is an absolute blessing. But I know people that do suffer from it, and a lot of it's from anxiety from being abused in their childhood. So we our bodies, you know, it, it takes a toll. Yeah, that, that, that threw me for a six. And the, the, the other one that I had to submit, Kelly, that was an interesting one, I was a bit older. Um, it was dun, 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 November 1989, I believe, when I submitted myself to a church's care and moved into a mission home to help me rehab off booze and pills and snort and speed. At the time, I was unaware that the guy that was running the joint, he had not long come out of a homosexual lifestyle is what they termed it back then. He's running a mission home for about, what, I think it was about six of us blokes, kids, down to about the age of 13, 14 at any time they're living there. He was running the joint. All boys um, in his care. It was about two, three months into living there. Because we were living there, basically, I moved out of home. My parents did not need to see me detox, and then I was just, oh, honestly, I was bad. You know, I thought I was Christ for three weeks, Kelly. I was messed up. <laughs> Sorry, it's not funny, but, but that's a story. It is, it is. But um, <laughs> see, in all this drama, in all this trauma, there's there's always some funny stuff that I remember that helps me cope with it, and it helps me remember it too. And so it wasn't long after um, there was an earthquake at the time in Newcastle and um, it shook the whole house. I thought Satan was coming up through the floor to get me because I was reading about the Exodus and God cursing Egypt at the time. And so mentally I wasn't doing too good because this is, you know, you're getting to get the junk out of your system. And so I was vulnerable, man. At the time I looked back and go, bang, that guy was good. He was good. He knew when to come in and talk to me, console me, comfort me. Every now and then he just sort of, you know, touched me on the shoulder, you know, it's okay, it's going to be all right. And I remember once I was really bad, badly constipated, you know, because of coming off all those drugs, your system just turns on you. And um, I was in a lot of pain. And he came in and did the old belly rubbing. And, oh, damn, it felt good. It was like mum doing it, you know. And um, when you're growing up as a kid, you know, and you got your belly ache, I just sort of clicked into the mode and, and thought, wow, I can trust this guy. He's pretty cool. And then the next time he did it, he massaged me. And I'm still to get clarification from Jimmy what he calls it, but <laughs> Clara, 
forbid him from saying it on air. So, but yeah, I probably we're not going to say it on this podcast either. No, well, I call it the empty space. There's a position, you know, between a man's testicles and his um, anus, the area there, like the perineum area or whatever they call it. Um, yes. It's a massage point for when you're constipated. And he knew. And um, he, he, he didn't do it just to help me like that because the next time he asked to see me, he was in his room lying naked on the floor, horny as a toad. You know what I mean? Right. He, he prepared me, he groomed me, and then when he asked me to come into his room to see something or talk to him, I vaguely remember, I walked in and there he was, and I just went, oh, nah, man, you're bent. I'm gone. I was out of there. I left. I never told anybody. Right. At the time, I'd been dating a girl that, that I'd met through this church, and um, we both decided to move to the main church. This was an offshoot of you know, and um, we moved there and so did the one of the pastors and his wife and kids moved there as well. So it was it was good. For me, it was like I could walk away from this. I could start fresh. I just wanted to start fresh. I went to the church in 89 because I knew I needed to start fresh. I needed to be cleansed. And lo and behold, I didn't get clean in that church either. Right? That was a shocker. <laughs> <laughs> there was there was just a bit more dirt. Eric wasn't quite dirty enough yet. You know what I mean? It was like wow. And so I went to the other church, and 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 eventually um, I married that girl that I was dating, and, and um, we had a son. And I think eleven years we were married, and we eventually got divorced. She never knew. I never told her until years after we were divorced. I just couldn't. I couldn't tell anybody. Because there's a time too when this sort of it switches a shame mode on you, yeah. And um, you know, it's all oh, you just don't talk about that. You know, <laughs> it's like yeah, I'd love to smack the turd in the head who started that rumor. This should be talked about because if it was talked about. It would happen a lot less often. Um, exactly, people would be more aware. And so we went to that church for a while. We got married. That pastor married us, and. Um, that was actually where I spent a couple of years, unbeknowning to me, with Brett Sandstock's grandmother, Peggy. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, she was a dear old lady and never knew about Brett then. I was, you know. I Eric, was can you do good. me a favor? And just yep. for the, the Americans listening who have no idea who Brett is, could you just give us a quick, like, oh, like yes. recap Sorry that story that. so that people will know? No, that's okay. I just want to make sure everybody yeah. knows. I believe it was 49 years ago to this year, actually, when um, Brett Sangstock, at the age of seven, was molested and continued to be molested by Frank Houston, um, Brian Houston's father here in Australia, who at the time was running um, the AOG, I believe. Later became Hillsong? Um, yeah, the AOG changed. It went through a switch. It went through a rebranding to the Australian Christian churches, which separated it from Frank. You know, I often look at denominations when they rebrand. You can't find any connection with Frank Houston and the Australian Christian churches. It was all done in the right. AOG. It's a separation thing. Keep that brand clean. You know, you don't want to make sure that Google turns up a search that has your name that's mixed with dirt. And so 
Hillsong eventually became a denomination in its own, Kel, not long ago, a couple of years back. So they are an entity of themselves now. They are Hillsong International Church. Brian is now accountable to no one, which wow. is, you know, you got to question things like that. i got nothing personal against Brian. I actually tagged him in a post concerning, you know, Jimmy Hinton and what his response was and how, why the hell didn't Brian call him out with Frank and um, Brian Houston actually liked the post. I hope he read it. I'd love to see Brian Houston repent and deal with this. Hillsong's got a lot of dirt under the carpet and sadly most of you guys in America never heard it. Um, the information's out there. A lot of it's mixed up and unfortunately it's in different sites that it's sometimes you look at it and you think that's beyond bizarre, but yeah, a lot of it's true. I knew of Hillsong early in my years when we were involved in the vineyard in the 90s. And so, yeah, I've had contact with people from Hillsong since the early 90s and it's an interesting place anybody that's involved in Hillsong just do your do your own research ask your own questions and look at the Bible compare what the Bible says to what they teach and what they say and what they practice that's your guiding line and then they those people that are involved in Hillsong they're the ones that need to make that choice but in my opinion, it's a very dangerous place, Kelly. Um, and I think it's just a good rule of thumb. I don't know if you can call it a rule of thumb, but um, churches that are like so autonomous like that and that there's no accountability and there's no transparency. And I think that if you're going to go to a church, for me anyway, I, I cannot be a part of one where there is no transparency, whether it's financially or otherwise. Yep. Every single thing done in every single church should be able to be published so that every single eye in the world can see it if necessary. Um, yeah. And you don't see that anymore in churches. I mean, they're few and far between. The denominations that will like publish the church budget and you know, some denominations still do that. They'll put the budget and the giving like in the the little booklet every Sunday and people can see like, this is how much money came in and this is where it went. But so few churches do that now. And there are always like stupid reasons why, you know, people will argue against that. And, you know, it's usually like, Oh, well you can't, everyone's not going to agree on everything. And like, I just think that those are excuses because if you're asking people to give 10% of their income to you, then you need to be accountable for every single penny. And I think it really starts there. For me, it's more like the start of it for me is financial transparency. And I think everything kind of falls into place from there. I look at it from a biblical perspective. As soon as somebody says you need to tithe, it's like shut your mouth. I don't want to listen to what you have to say. If you're if you're saying that I mandatorily have to give a tithe of 10% from my wages according to Scripture, you're misquoting Scripture, you don't understand Scripture, and you need to read train yourself you know because um it's not biblical to tithe for goodness sakes we're not israel and if people wanted to tithe and had the research to look into it you know it's nearly 40 percent the actual tithe it's nearly 40 percent, and it's got to go to israel kill now giving it to the local church she's all got to go back to israel do you know what i mean they're commanding you yeah. to tithe to them 
but in the scriptures it says it's got to go to Jerusalem to the temple, which ain't there no more. Ding dongs, man. But financial <laughs> transparency is a joke. We have to wait every two years for Hillsong to put these up. Um, the last church I was at, the Presbyterian Church, there was a book out the front, and if you wanted to look at it, it was there. The finances. I didn't mind that. It should be like that. So go back to the church that I was hanging out with um, after I got married. We were there for a while, and I started to get disheartened with the church, but it wasn't that. It was just that inside of me there was just a battle, um, living two lives, not in, in the sense that I lived two lives, but I had two faces. I had the one that I saw in the mirror and the one that everybody else thought that I was. Um, right. And... Yeah, we eventually got hooked up with the vineyard and left the Foursquare Church and um, hooked up with the vineyard for quite a while and that just made it worse for me. The vineyard was interesting. I call it sensual Christianity. That's pretty much what it was like back then, you know, safe sex, hugging with Christians. <laughs> but, um <laughs> It was a touchy-feely time, Kelly. If you look back at the 90s musics of the vineyard, it wasn't praise and worship. It was raw, soppy, gooey crud that made you cry, made you weepy emotionally. It opened you up to comfort, to be hugged. It was a mess, man. It was a mess. And so I'm struggling to, to try and understand, even still then, you know, what is a Christian? Because I've gone from sort of a little bit of what I understood from school, the Baptist church, the Foursquare church. Um, now I'm in the vineyard and it's like I'm getting messed up. Everybody teaches different stuff. Nobody teaches what the actual Bible says. And so then my world became one of, of, of emotions and feelings and, and following being led by the spirit and, you know, and all that stuff. <laughs> you get the warm fuzzies yeah. that must be the Holy Ghost, but if the hair on the back of your neck stands up, oh, that's the devil. And, yeah, I did a lot of weird crap in that time. There is a – my first podcast I did that I put up that's out there is Ghost Stories with Chris Roseborough. I did that session with him at the Pirate Christian Conference two years ago. So people can listen to that if they really want to know what weird stuff I did in the church. It was just bonkers. <laughs> I, I, I had to just leave that church. And so I eventually, because in amongst all this, I'm not doing good mentally either. You know, like I'm trying to keep a marriage, raise, help raise a kid. My son was born and I think I had three jobs at the time to make enough money so my wife didn't have to work and she could stay and look up. It was just bad. And I was working at a hospital. That kind of messed you up too when you're emotionally unstable, all the stuff that goes on in hospitals eventually basically in the year 2000 was when I had a meltdown up in Sydney and I had a marriage breakdown. Um, I moved from Sydney to Melbourne. I got headhunted by a company down there, Main Health. And so I ended up working at corporate. Um, I was divorced. And so all I did every all day, every day and night was drink, drink and work, drink and work. I gave the company five years and pretty much after five years, there were some things that happened. And I left the establishment, let's just say. <laughs> and um, three weeks before I left, I got a phone call from the Department of Community Services. 
And I think I worked it out. I was 39 years old at the time. And they wanted to advise me that I was adopted. And my father was looking for me, had been looking for me since 1992. And um, let's just say I was off the grid. And um, when we moved to Melbourne, um, things happened and I fell in love with a lovely lady who I'm still married to today, who has put up with so much and it still cares for me. Um, she became a bit of a sort of a an island of refuge, you'd say, in a real rotten world. And so there I was. Um, I was pretty much on the border of a mental breakdown when I got the phone call. Um, I was sitting in my office, 11th floor the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne, Francis Perry House. We used to have the top three floors. It was a private hospital maternity suite. I was thinking of going out the window. Um, I was the only guy that had an open window in the whole building. I was a supply manager, man. I had everything, Kelly. Oh, seriously. I had fresh air coming in that room, and I'm looking out the window, looking at Melbourne University, thinking, what's the point? Um... And then I get a phone call like that and I just said to the lady straight up, I said, listen, I'm sitting here in my office and I said, don't bother calling the cops because by the time they got here, I'd jump anyway. I said, I'm thinking about jumping out this window. I said, my life has turned to shit. I said, I, I, I'm mentally falling apart and you ring me and advise me that I'm adopted. Not a smart move. And I just said to her, I said, give me a reason why I shouldn't jump. I said, because you've just pulled the rug out from underneath me, the only rug that I thought was solid from about my past. And um, something happened. I don't know what happened. She went into churchy mode, Kel. She was a Christian. And within a matter of five minutes, I found out that her pastor was my old pastor from when I was being abused and groomed in that church that was helping me walk, walk through the scout abuse. He was her pastor. And I said to her straight up, because I, I, she mentioned the church, and I said to her, is so-and-so your pastor? And she went, yes, actually, how do you know him? And I just said, tell him. I said, you tell him on Sunday that Eric's okay. And that was it. Um, within the next three weeks, things happened at work. They were being real dishonest with me and stuff. And You know, I just walked. I'd had enough. I went home, um, and I was a mess. Um used to take me two, three hours just to try to work out to mow a lawn. I just couldn't think, you know. Um, ended up going to the doctor and my doctor just said, man, you've got mental. Um, we're going to need to work with you. And we spent some time talking. And I spent, you know, just time at home being with myself and just chilling out because I'd been working, you know, and doing stuff all my life and never had breaks. When that all happened, um, my wife and I, we moved up here to the mid-north coast on the east coast of Australia, and um, I needed it. I was mental. And it was good for her too. She moved up here. Her family were up here. We moved up here in 2005, you know, and I spent a couple of years working at dairies, and it was good. It was therapy. It was therapeutic. When cows get upset with you, they crap on you. They don't stab you in the back. Um <laughs> You know, or if they're cranky, they'll pee on you. You know, it's hilarious. 
took me six months, Kelly, six months it took me to stop vomiting when I was working in a dairy. The farmer that owned the joint used to laugh at me every day. We were good mates in the end. Um, so eventually I got used to the farm life. And <laughs> in that time, my dad died. Mm. He um, got up one night with mum. He said, oh, I'm feeling a bit thirsty, Beryl. Got up, went to have a drink. He dropped dead in front of her on the way to the kitchen. No. And she had to climb over him to get to the phone. <laughs> you know, it was like, man, mum abseil and dad to get to the phone at about, what, she was about 84 at the time. And that was just not long after I was sort of starting to try and restore my relationship with him because we never got on. I never got on with mum either. So it was um, that that put me, I can't even remember it. I was in bed for a month. I, I It was just like a month disappeared. All I did was sleep. I don't even remember it. My wife fills in the blanks for me, you know. We moved from there. I isolated We isolated ourselves more. We moved further out into the bush, and it was awesome. We were living on 40 acres. Nobody hassle you. And, yeah, except God. God starts working on me. And um, like I said earlier, things just started to happen. So I reported all this stuff to the Royal Commission. And there is more to Eric's story, and we are going to hear that next time on Survivor Sanctuary. It is time for me to bring today's episode of the podcast to a close, but I want to thank Eric so much for being willing to share his story, to be vulnerable with us and share a part of his heart with us. And uh, if you want to interact with Eric and the rest of the Survivor Sanctuary crew, well, you can head to Survivor Sanctuary on Facebook. Just do a search for the podcast and uh, you'll be asked to join the group and then you can make a request to join. I will add you in and then you can join the conversation and have good times with us, but also have great discussions and uh, find support for the things that you're going through and find like minds, people who understand what it means to survive abuse. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. Don't forget to check out Eric's podcast, The Outback Berean, and you can find him on Facebook as well. I'll catch you next time here on another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.